Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 Podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. In this week's episode, I am launching a mini podcast series that is going to unpack the book Pedagogy of the Oppressed, specifically the 30th anniversary edition on Kindle. Forgive my pronunciation, but this book was written by Paulo Freire. I have to admit, I went online and looked up many ways to pronounce the name. I've heard it pronounced as Freire, Freire, etc. But Freire is how multiple people who live in Brazil actually pronounce the name, so I assume it is correct. Okay, so you might be wondering why am I unpacking this particular book for the podcast. So let me read for you a short summary of the book. This is from pages 43 and 44 of the book itself. Quote, This book will present some aspects of what the writer has termed the pedagogy of the oppressed, a pedagogy which must be forged with, not for, the oppressed, whether individuals or peoples, in the incessant struggle to regain their humanity. This pedagogy makes oppression and its causes objects of reflection by the oppressed, and from that reflection will come their necessary engagement in the struggle for their liberation. And in the struggle, this pedagogy will be made and remade. End quote. So overall, the pedagogy of oppressed is a pedagogy for regaining humanity through liberatory practices and is done with the oppressed, not done to or for the oppressed. So this is something that guests have talked about. Like if you listen back to the episode with Martine Urbach, which talks about some liberatory practices that you can do in education, as well as some interviews that have not released yet. So what I plan on doing over the next few weeks in the Unpacking Scholarship episodes, which is every other week, I will be unpacking one chapter from this book. Now, the first chapter is a little bit more of an introduction on the oppression that people face in general, and then some of the later chapters unpack more of the implications in education in general. However, in each one of these episodes, I'm going to unpack potential implications for CS educators. So to start, I want to say that Freire describes oppression as domesticating. And the pedagogy that Freire is arguing for is a cycle, and it seeks to end the idea that, quote, to be is to be like, and to be like is to be like the oppressor, end quote. It's from page 44. All right, so let's dive into this. So right off the bat on page 39, we start with this quote. While the problem of humanization has always, from an axiological point of view, been humankind's central problem, it now takes on the character of an inescapable concern. Concern for humanization leads at once to the recognition of dehumanization, not only as an ontological possibility, but as an historical reality. And as an individual perceives the extent of dehumanization, he or she may ask if humanization is a viable possibility. Within history, in concrete, objective contexts, both humanization and dehumanization are possibilities for a person as an uncompleted being conscious of their incompletion. End quote. All right, so let's unpack that a little bit. So Freire is saying that one of the biggest concerns for humankinds, or one of the biggest problems from a values standpoint is humanization and dehumanization. And notes that this has been something that has been going on throughout history, and that people have actually asked whether or not humanization is a possibility, considering the extent of dehumanization going on. This is particularly relevant with all of the chaos going on in the world and the way that people are describing it. So I'll try and relate it not only to education, but the following discussions I will also connect to some of the more contemporary things that are occurring at the time of this recording, which is in September of 2020. So the author argues in this first chapter that dehumanization applies not only to the people whose humanity has been stolen, but to the people stealing it as it distorts what the author considers to be the vocation of people. 
So in other words, whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed, dehumanization is going on whenever there is any form of oppression. So here's a quote from page 40. Quote, This struggle is possible only because dehumanization, although a concrete historical fact, is not a given destiny, but the result of an unjust order that engenders violence in the oppressors, which in turn dehumanizes the oppressed. End quote. Here's another quote from the same page. Quote, in order for this struggle to have meaning, the oppressed must not, in seeking to regain their humanity, which is a way to create it, become in turn oppressors of the oppressors, but rather restorers of the humanity of both. This, then, is the great humanistic and historical task of the oppressed, to liberate themselves and their oppressors as well." End quote. So this is a very important point. So it's not just about flipping power dynamics that are going on in the world or eventually, as we'll talk in other uh, chapters, in the classroom. But it's to try and humanize everybody and treat everybody as individuals and to liberate everyone rather than flipping it so that now the former oppressors are now being oppressed. So one of the key points in this book is that Freire posits that it is the oppressed who need to free both the oppressed and oppressors. And the reason why he says this is because the oppressors almost always soften their power with false generosity. So here's a quote from page 40 that kind of describes that more. Quote, True generosity consists precisely in fighting to destroy the causes which nourish false charity. False charity constrains the fearful and subdued, the rejects of life, to extend their trembling hands. True generosity lies in strivings so that these hands, whether of individuals or entire peoples, need to be extended less and less in supplication, so that more and more they become human hands in which work and working transforms the world. End quote. It's from page 40. Okay, so here are a couple of questions that are a follow-up to this, and this is on page 40 and 41. Quote, Who are better prepared than the oppressed to understand the terrible significance of an oppressive society? Who suffer the effects of oppression more than the oppressed? Who can better understand the necessity of liberation? End quote. While I agree with the gen general sentiment here that the author is talking about, I disagree with the idea that it is always oppressors softening their power through some sort of false generosity. As an example of that, with all the things going on with Black Lives Matter at the moment, I know there are a lot of people who are not black who are genuinely trying to learn how they can best assist right now. They're not just trying to soften their power through some kind of a false generosity, but they are actually trying to elevate others or even get rid of their own power. So as an example, there are executives at corporations who have entirely stepped down from positions and given their position to extremely qualified black individuals. This is an example of somebody who's not just trying to soften their power, but is actually giving up their power for other people. And I state this because this is just something that is obviously on a lot of people's minds right now in September of 2020. So it's a contemporary example. Now, one of the interesting parts about this particular chapter is the author mentions that when striving for liberation, sometimes the oppressed actually become oppressors or sub-oppressors. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that sometimes it's flipped, where it's, okay, you've been oppressing me, now I'm going to oppress you. Now, when it comes to sub-oppressors, Freire provides some examples of farm workers who are oppressed by the owner of a, of a farm and can be promoted maybe to something like a supervisor or manager, who then oppresses their colleagues because they are continued to be oppressed by the farm's owner. 
Now, an example of what that looks like in America's history. So a good parallel is with field slaves and house slaves. So the house slaves worked in the house and often oversaw supervision and punishments of field slaves, who were the people who worked in the fields. Although their living and working conditions differed from field slaves, they were still slaves oppressed by the plantation's owners. So that's a historical example within America of a sub-oppressor, which gets at one of the points that I'll bring up later on, but the author kind of positions things as you're either an oppressor or somebody who is oppressed, but somebody who is a sub-oppressor is simultaneously both. So they're oppressing their colleagues, but they are oppressed by the plantation owner. Now, one of the things that I really like that Freire points out is that even when there are revolutions or overthrows in power or things are balanced out in terms of power distribution or however you want to describe that, there is still a shadow of the former oppressor that has shaped the new dominant power or the new way of being or valuing or thinking. Okay, so a contemporary example of this in education. If you've been in education for at least five years or more, I'm sure you've seen at least one, if not multiple, waves of the latest greatest thing. Whether it be project-based learning is going to solve all problems, or problem-based learning is going to solve all problems, or how about grit, or how about fixed versus growth mindset. So like all of these are areas that people have focused on and have come into power and have supplanted the previous power. However, when you are inside of the classroom context, you are still thinking through stuff that came prior to it. So if your district is just now getting into the fixed versus growth mindset, discourse and research and whatnot, but previously was talking about grit, you're going to be looking at this new fixed versus growth mindset conversation through the lens of grit or through the lens of whatever came before it. So that's just a quick example of how the former values from the previous dominant power or idea can still inform the new dominant power or idea in a classroom context. Another way that the author argues that new power structures kind of carry over the values and guidelines from the previous oppressors is by giving the analogy of liberation as being like painful childbirth. So through the process of two groups coming together, they create a child, and this new child is then going to have some of the characteristics of both the oppressed and the oppressor. So that's just another way of kind of framing that. So the author also argues that the oppressed are actually afraid of freedom be because they have internalized so many of these values and guidelines set by the, the oppressor that they're afraid of what would happen if they did not have those values and guidelines. In other words, they've kind of lost their own humanity or their own way. So while I understand where that might make sense, like I can think of plenty of examples inside and outside of education, I can also argue where it doesn't make sense. So for example, I don't value standardized tests because I value individualized expertise over commonly understood baselines of understandings. So I'm perfectly content with removing standardized tests and even standards and encouraging teachers and students to focus on learning how to learn what they're interested in rather than learning the same content as everyone else. In other words, I'm not afraid of what would happen if we remove standardized tests or standards. However, to argue with myself, the fact that we don't have the same baseline of understanding scientific research, processes and data, etc. in the area of COVID make me wish more people were aware of their actions and how they could potentially impact the health of everyone around them. So again, I'm just throwing these examples out here because not everything should be taken literally and should be taken as either or. There's a lot of in-between that is not necessarily discussed by the author, but is at least worth pointing out or considering. 
However, I do have to say that a lot of what you are going to listen to in this episode and the following episodes on the other chapters have heavily influenced my own approach to education, my philosophy of education, as well as many of the guests who have been on the show. Okay, so we have people who are oppressed and we have people who are oppressing others, so what can we actually do about this? So the author mentions that, quote, in order for the oppressed to be able to wage the struggle for their liberation, they must perceive the reality of oppression not as a closed world from which there is no exit, but as a limiting situation which they can transform, end quote. It's from page 44. So this is a very important thing to note. So people who are oppressed need to understand that this can be a temporary situation and this can be something that can be changed. Now, one way that oppressors can do that is by actually working in solidarity with the oppressed. They can fight side by side to actually change the systems of oppression that are dehumanizing people and actually work towards seeing people as people and not categories, which I don't know about for you, but that really resonates with what's going on in my social circles right now. There is a lot of othering and a lot of categories being thrown at different people, especially when it comes to politics. Okay, so there are two overall stages that kind of guide this pedagogy of the oppressed. So the first stage is one where the oppressed unveil and recognize oppression, and then commits to its transformation as well as their own transformation. Now stage two is when the oppressed have been transformed, and the pedagogy is of all people who are seeking permanent liberation by continually seeking to remove, quote, the myths created and developed in the old order which, like specters, haunt the new structure emerging from the revolutionary transformation, end quote, from page 49. So stage one of pedagogy of the oppressed is to getting the oppressed to realize that they are oppressed, and stage two, after the oppressed have been liberated, it's this continual reflection on oppression and the oppressed in relation to prior values of the oppressed and how they are informing the current situation or the current understandings. Now, on the other hand, the oppressors are actively working towards maintaining power structures and power dynamics and maintaining this level of oppression because it works in their favor at the cost of others. Here's a quote from page 50 that really resonates with what I'm seeing in online discourse and how people are communicating to each other and resonates with some of the stuff that you're going to hear in discussions in future interviews that have not been released yet. This is from page 50. Quote, for the oppressors, however, it is always the oppressed, whom they obviously never called the oppressed, but, depending on whether they are fellow countrymen or not, those people, or the blind and envious masses, or savages, or natives, or subversives, who are disaffected, who are violent, barbaric, wicked, or ferocious, when they react to the violence of the oppressors. End quote. Okay, so to kind of rephrase that, in other words, the oppressors who are enacting violence on the oppressed will then point the finger at them and say, well, you're the one who's being violent. Okay, so as a very contemporary example of this, this really resonates right now with Black Lives Matter protests. There are people who are acting out who are saying, why are you being violent? Why are you acting out? But what they're not realizing is that there are systemic forms of violence that protesters are responding to. To tie it into the classroom, this also resonates with the discussions on classroom behavior management techniques as well as school and faculty dress codes that ban natural hair or cultural attire, or teachers who don't focus on standards, etc. In each of these scenarios, the oppressed are being told how to behave, and if they're not behaving accordingly, then it is marked as disobedience. So the author suggests that the liberation he is striving for should not reverse 
the oppressors and the oppressed. Again, it says that multiple times throughout it. However, even when the formerly oppressed are now on equal grounds with the former oppressors, the former oppressors sometimes don't feel liberated. Quote, on the contrary, they genuinely consider themselves to be oppressed, conditioned by the experience of oppressing others. Any situation other than their former seems to them like oppression, end quote. Page 52. So in other words, because the former oppressor viewed everything as being reduced to objects for their own disposal, the new regime, status, or way of being is interpreted as oppression on their former modes of domination. Again, this is very relevant to Black Lives Matter. And as we'll find out in this episode and other episodes, is very relevant in education as well. Okay, so here's a quote from page 53 that ties together many of the ideas that I just talked about. Quote, The oppressors do not perceive their monopoly on having more as a privilege which dehumanizes others and themselves. They cannot see that. In the egoistic pursuit of having as a possessing class, they suffocate in their own possessions and no longer are. They merely have. For them, having more is an inalienable right, a right they acquired through their own effort, with their courage to take risks. If others do not have more, it is because they are incompetent and lazy, and worst of all is their unjustifiable ingratitude towards the generous gestures of the dominant class. Precisely because they are ungrateful and envious, the oppressed are regarded as potential enemies who must be watched." End quote. Just as a quick aside, this book was originally translated into English in 1970. That's 1970. So 50 years ago at the time of this recording, and it sounds like it could have been written this year. Okay, so the discourse that is used by the oppressors often positions the oppressed as an enemy or ungrateful or unworthy or unwilling to live the way that the oppressor is living. However, it does not acknowledge the control that goes on with it. So let's talk about that for a moment. So Freire argues an important thing to note is that some oppressors actually align with the oppressed and are fighting alongside them, so they join the cause. However, they do so in a way that maintains their status as an oppressor. So for example, instead of working alongside or using their power to elevate voices, they believe they must be in control of the transformation and take the lead. This, however, can create problems where the allies end up taking control of the narrative. So as an example, in one of the interviews that's going to release down the road, I'm speaking with a guest and talking about how a lot of well-intentioned cis people have taken the control of the narrative of non-binary individuals and trans individuals. So stay tuned for a future interview that actually unpacks that a little bit more. Just giving you a teaser. So to prevent this problem of taking control of the narrative, the author recommends that we, collectively, everyone, need to just continuously re-examine ourselves. Because, quote, attempting to liberate the oppressed without the reflective participation in the act of liberation is to treat them as objects which must be saved from a burning building. It is to lead them into the populist pitfall and transform them into masses which can be manipulated, end quote. It's from page 59. Now, another way that the author mentions oppressors maintain control over people is that they control their dominance by positioning the oppressed against each other and making it so the oppressed are attracted to the oppressor's way of life. So think of various assimilation tactics that are used today. So people immigrate into this country, 
and their ways of being and their values are not valued by the dominant culture, and they are asked to assimilate into that. That is a form of control and from a cultural standpoint. Okay, so what does that example look like in the classroom? So one example that comes to mind is the ways that kids are supposed to behave in class. So how loud their voices are or soft their voices are, how they are supposed to sit, whether they are supposed to get up frequently or just maintain sitting in a seat for an extended period of time, whether they're supposed to ask questions or not ask questions, whether they're supposed to question authority in particular, whether they can pose alternatives to assignments, whether they can set their own assignment dates. These are all simple examples of ways that educators can unintentionally act as oppressors in a classroom setting. And the way that it's done is by asserting certain ways of learning and certain ways of being within, quote, learning environments as being more acceptable or less acceptable than others. This is a form of control and a form of dominance. And if you listen to many of the interviews in this podcast, you'll hear that many of the guests have talked about how they try and avoid that. They try and make it so that it's students have a voice and that it's interest-driven and that Kids are able to set their own expectations and ways of being in a classroom setting, etc. These are all ways that align with the author's approach of pedagogy of the oppressed. Whether it's stated or not, they're at least related to it. Okay, so one more tactic of control is that oppressors often end up controlling the narrative about the oppressed and eventually getting them to believe their own negative image. So for an example, one of the studies that I have read is a discourse analysis on the use of the word urban in professional journals. Now, what was found is that the way that urban was used was very different in terms of the kinds of descriptions used for other words like suburban or rural schools. In fact, the discourse around urban schooling often used negative terminology, saying that students were lacking, or just a general deficit model, and that students were incapable of assimilating to the proper, quote, ways of schooling and learning. So again, the oppressors, in this case, people who are writing journal articles, were controlling the narrative on describing urban kids and urban learning and learning in urban contexts as being deficient or lacking. And that can carry over into the kids who go to those schools as feeling like they are deficient or lacking, even if they're not. Especially if we ask the question, deficient and lacking in what and according to whom? Okay, so how can the oppressed and the oppressors work towards freedom for everyone? So the author suggests that it is through permanent dialogue, in particular, dialogue that leads to reflection and action. So this is where the first chapter ends. And again, this first chapter is more on some of the larger problems that are in play. And later chapters are going to talk about, well, what does this mean for education or educators? We'll learn more about those in coming weeks. Now, as always in the Unpacking Scholarship episodes, I kind of like to end with some of my questions or lingering thoughts that I have. So one of them is that since this was written 50 years ago, we did not have a lot of publications on intersectionality. So a question that I have is, what are the intersectionalities of oppressor and oppressed? So the author mentioned sub-oppressors who were simultaneously oppressing their peers and oppressed by some kind of a boss. In the example that was given in the book, it was by the owner of a farm. However, I would argue that in educational context, when I was in the classroom, I was simultaneously oppressing students with some of the methods of control that were used for, quote, classroom management or whatever, while simultaneously being oppressed by administrators who were telling me what good classroom teaching looked like or sounded like. So in a context like school, an educator might be on both ends of the oppression continuum. 
in terms of simultaneously being oppressed by some kind of a force being controlled while also simultaneously oppressing others. Obviously, unintentionally, at least hopefully. But again, many of the episodes that I've already released for the interviews and many of the episodes that are going to release will kind of talk about how to limit these forms of control and make it so that we go with a more of a critical approach to pedagogy and engage in some liberatory practices. Another thought that I have that builds off of this is that there are many more nuances than two distinct categories of oppressor and oppressed. So I wish the opening chapter discussed that more. So instead of putting up this false binary, instead acknowledging that there are more power dynamics at play that exist along this continuum of oppression. So a question that I would leave you with is, when is someone in CS education simultaneously an oppressor and someone who is oppressed? We'll unpack this more in follow-up episodes. However, next week is an interview, and it'll be two weeks from now when I will talk about chapter two, and two weeks after that when I talk about chapter three, etc. So stay tuned for a continuation of this mini-series on the book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I hope you got something out of this discussion on the author's discussion of oppression, whether it be something that you can learn and apply in the classroom or just something to help you better understand what's going on in the world right now. I hope you're all having a wonderful week and I hope you're all staying safe.